Well, once again, good evening. We're glad you're all here. We just had a word of prayer to begin with. My topic tonight is what difference does it make? And as I mentioned previously, um, Bruce Malone did such a marvelous job presenting how science and faith work together that he's a hard act to follow. And I thoroughly enjoyed his presentations, and I hope you did too. But there's some aspects of Genesis that transcend the physical. They go into the metaphysical. They go beyond uh, the physical world around us, and science can't touch that. How does the creation account apply to you and me today? How does it influence our lives? And I hope that we can make some of those applications. There were so many points connected with the Bible and creation that to try to narrow these down was difficult, so I will just talk fast and get as many in as I can. First off, science has limitations. It's limited to the material world. It doesn't provide a moral compass for people to behave, their behavior. You see, science is concerned with time, space, and matter, the material universe around us. But there's more to life than that. First, let's talk about time. All measures of time really are based on astronomical events. Now, the year is based on one movement of the, the earth around the sun in 365 and a quarter days. 365 and a quarter yoms. I'll come back to that. The day is a 24-hour period, and that's the rotation of the earth on its axis. The other's the revolution. This is a rotation. A month, we get the word month or month from it because it's the period that the moon goes around the earth, and that's 29.53 days in a month. And, of course, an hour is 124th of a day, and it's 124th of the distance that the earth moves. A second is 160th of a minute, and a minute is 160th of an hour. But there is no astronomical event connected with the week. What do we base the week on? Its only basis is found in its existence in Genesis. Yet the world operates around the week today, showing its validity. Even human and non-human biorhythms are influenced and affected by the weekly cycle. During the French Revolution, they tried going to a 10-day week, and both men and animals began to buckle and break under it because they were set up to operate on a seven-day week cycle. Now, the current weekly cycle is a living fossil. It's a living testimony of an event that happened long ago in our origins and creation. Now, the biblical word for day is yom, Y-O-M. Perhaps you're familiar with Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, okay? Now, a yom has various meanings as it's used in Scripture, The first one is, it's that part of the day when the sun shines. That's called a day, right? As opposed to night. And then we can talk about the whole 24-hour period, a calendar day, and that 
is both day and night, and that's based around a rotation of the the uh, Earth on its axis. There's another meaning for it, like we say the day of the Lord or the day of temptation or the day of salvation. So that's another use of it. How is it used in reference to Genesis 1.5 and beyond? It's the second one that's listed here. It's the 24-hour period. Every time this is used in reference to Genesis, uh, the first 11 chapters, it's talking about a 24-hour period. Yet there are many people who want to make it a 1,000 years long. They may want to stretch it out and make it a million years long. But that's kind of difficult because a yom simply means a 24-hour period. And you would have a very difficult time if we spent 500 years in daylight and then 500 years in darkness. You can imagine what that would do to the plants. Even more so if it's a million years in daylight and a million years in darkness. You can't blend those two interpretations. Now, the current week that we find in the scriptures actually overlaps two chapters. We find that Days 1 through 6 are found in chapter 1 of Genesis. But the seventh day is found in chapter 2. Now, why? Why two chapters? Well, there's a good reason for it. The the Bible, of course, originally did not have chapters and uh, verses in it. And when it was divided up into chapters, they arbitrarily, whoever did it, arbitrarily cut it off at the end of the the uh, six days. And so chapter 2, the first three verses of it actually belong to chapter 1. And I'll show you why in a moment. And notice what it says. It says that in verse 31 of chapter 1, it says that when God completed the physical world, the physical universe and creation, he said it was very good. All the other days, he just said it was good. Now he says it's very good when he created man. And this little, uh, this little just twist of a phrase tells us something. It tells us that God was thoroughly happy in what had been developed, what had been built in those six days. When we get to chapter 2, God doesn't work. God isn't creating anything. God's taking the day off. Now, why? Was he tired? I don't think so. And I think that's the key to help us understand some of the spiritual aspects of this story. And notice in verse 3, it says, well, I'll start with verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. So he didn't rest because he was tired. He stopped creating. He stopped making things. Why? He had a better purpose in mind. Look at verse 3. And God did several things. He blessed the seventh day. He sanctified it. Why? Because that in it, He had rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now, notice the word that's used here. It says 
that God created. All that God had created. Now there's a reason for that, and I'll get to it in a moment. You see, there are those who say that there are two creation stories in the Bible. And they try to discredit the creation story because they said, ah, these Hebrews, they, they didn't get it straight. They had two creation stories. No, it's one creation story. What is it? It's looking at it from different perspectives for a different reason. As we look at this, notice that the first six days were much written about. As a matter of fact, even Brother Bruce, in his presentations, he took us through the first chapter. But he didn't get into the second chapter. The reason is, he's coming from a scientific uh, perspective. And the second chapter, those first three verses, are beyond science. Because they cross over into the realm of spirituality. They cross over into a moral law as opposed to a natural law. So this is the reason why a lot of the literature, even Ken Ham's materials, and they will take you through the creation week, but not that last day. Well, it's interesting that the number six is associated with the number of a man. Because man was the last thing created. Well, actually, woman was. But man and woman together are considered mankind, right? So human beings were the last things that were created physically. And so this is where a lot leave off. But when you get into the seventh chapter, you're talking about man and God having a relationship. You see... God now is telling men how to live, how they should live their lives and relate to the rest of creation. I'll show you that in a few minutes. First off, the physical creator as opposed to the relating creator. Look at the uh, third verse here on chapter 2. All right, and God blessed the seventh day, I already read that, which God created and made. And then notice something strange takes place when you go to verse 4. No longer is he called God. But down here it says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heaven, the earth and the heavens. Notice just a little nuance there. It changes from God to Lord God. Now what's the difference? You see, those two words give it a different meaning. You see, in Genesis 1, when it's talking about God, it uses the word Elohim. When you see an I am on a word in Hebrew, that's a plural. So really, in the beginning, God's created the heavens and the earth. That's how it should be. But the word God in reference to the great God of the universe, is singular. The Godhead created the heavens and the earth. You see? The whole Godhead was involved in the creation of the earth. All right. In the beginning, the Godhead, or the plural majesty of God, 
was involved in creation. Matter of fact, I mentioned to you in another seminar that the word created, God created, the word created comes from the Hebrew word bara. Bara comes from the root word bar. What does bar mean? Bar Jonah, son of Jonah. So we see hidden in the Hebrew that the son was involved with that creation. And in verse 2 of chapter 1, what's the first member of the Godhead you run into? And the spirit moved on the face of the deep. And so we find the whole Godhead was involved in chapter 1. But when you get down here, it says, Lord God, this is Yahweh Elohim. Now both Jesus and the Father can be called Yahweh. Yahweh Elohim. This means the eternal, the self-sufficient one. But it means even more than that. It means the eternal one who wants to have a relationship with his creation. And so we find that in chapter 2, it's talking about how God wants to interact with his creation. He transcends space, time, and matter. As a matter of fact, he enters into it and takes on human form as the Son of God. And when Jesus says, I am, what what was that name, I am? Hmm, seems to me, wasn't that the name given to Moses by God when he was at the burning bush? Who, Who shall I say is sending me? And he said, tell him I am sent you. Now notice the word I am. He didn't say I was or I will be. I am the eternal present. He's above and beyond time. He's beyond the physical universe. Therefore, science can't touch him. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. I am the I am. Jesus was declaring himself to be on uh, on that mountain in the burning bush, you see. And so we find here that God now intervenes with humans and interacts with them. So this, what is the second creation story? It's actually the story of how God gets involved with the creation. It's also interesting that there are two laws that are given. In chapter 1, you know, he creates all the puppy dogs and the kitty cats and everything. And he created human beings at the same time, right? On the sixth day. Now, they are to maintain themselves. They are to propagate. They are to um, interact with the rest of nature. But the thing is, natural law is better, you might better say, do what comes naturally. But on the seventh day, God instituted a second law called the moral law. And this is where God put standards or guidelines when he interacted with man in a relationship. And therefore, he's saying, if you love me, you will observe that moral law. Now, what's the difference? If a man is going to follow natural law, I mean, a dog 
will mate with every uh, female dog in the neighborhood, right? Is it a sin? No, because the dog is operating under natural law, not moral law. Will a dog steal another dog's bone? Uh Uh-huh. Right. Is it a sin? No, that's what dogs do. That's part of being a dog, you see. So, thou shalt not steal doesn't affect the dog. Thou shalt not commit adultery, or fornication does not affect the dog. But when a human person starts mating with everybody in the neighborhood and stealing things from one another, that's considered a crime. Right? Why? Because when you discard the moral law and you break the relationship with God, you will revert back to natural law. And the number of days of the week, six, is the number of the man, the natural heart of the man. Seven is the number of one who has rested relationship with God, you see. And so, what did God do? God, during this time that he's walking and talking and visiting with our father Adam in the garden, he's setting up the background for the Ten Commandments. Now, obviously, there's just Adam and Eve there. He didn't have to worry too much about adultery. God gave him dominion over everything, so he really didn't have to worry about stealing. But yet, nonetheless, the principles were laid down there for moral living, and we'll see later why. What did God give him that he didn't give to the others, to the other animals? He gave them a reason. So, in plain words, the first six days... The creatures didn't have reason. But God not only gave man reason as a gift, but now on the seventh day he gave him understanding. He gave him a reason for being that would set him apart from the animals. So the scripture says Sabbath was made for man. In plain words, we weren't made just to lie home in bed all day on the Sabbath. We weren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for us. What? To have relationship with God. You can take the day off and never keep the Sabbath. You can take the right day off but never keep the Sabbath because you haven't entered into the relationship that went with the seventh day. And so we find here that Sabbath was set aside so that man could spend time with God and learn of him. And what God expected of him without all the earthly distractions. Also, it separates man's creaturely needs from his spiritual need to fellowship with God. It brings him peace with God. And when we break away from the Sabbath, you will find that before long you're going to start going down spiritually. Because it helps to strengthen and fortify. Now, There would be no evolutionist if men remembered the Sabbath weekly. Why? Because every week he'd have to stop and say, hey, where did I come from? What am I doing here? Where am I going? And you know, these are the basic points that science can't answer. Science cannot answer the moral questions of life. And what are those? The chief questions people have are, Where did I come from? 
Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? The evolutionist, this is his answer for it. Where did I come from? Nowhere. You're just a cosmic accident. You just happened. Well, why am I here? For no reason. You're just here by chance. Where am I going? You're not going to go anywhere. You're just going to fizzle out and your molecules will go back to the universe. That's death. We find that that doesn't really offer us much hope. But if we look at God's approach to creation, where did I come from? I am God's special creation. Why am I here? I'm here for a purpose. And I'll show you some texts that tell you that purpose. Where am I going? I'm going to eternal life with God. I have a future. So what is the meaning of life? Well, in Astronomy Magazine, it says, what is the meaning of life? And some of you have seen this text before. It's perhaps the oldest philosophical question. And you can see the ridiculous answer given in a Monty Python movie. It says, try to be nice to people, avoid eating fat, read a good book now and then, and get some walking in, and try to live together in peace and harmony with people of all creeds and nations. Oh boy, that's a nice warm fuzzy. But does that really give us a purpose for being? God tells us in the scripture, fear God, give glory to him, for this is the whole duty, the whole reason, the whole purpose of being for man. And in Ecclesiastes 12:13, he even says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Keep God and keep his what? His commandments. How can you keep his commandments if you don't know his commandments? And this is why on the seventh day, God set that day aside so that he could communicate with them. When sin entered the world, apparently the law was already in existence because what's the first thing that's offered is a lamb. And if the law was not in existence at that time, then why did God get bent out of shape when Cain killed Abel? He apparently knew that you should not kill, and so forth. And so we find that there was an early understanding of these things. In this postmodern generation, there's an increase in skepticism about the existence of God and what his character is like. And this affects us even today. We hear this on the radio and TV. You know what I'm getting sick of? I am getting sick of hearing over and over again from different politicians, well, this isn't who we are. Or this isn't our values. This isn't American values. What are American values? Who are we? Well, apparently... We must be schizophrenic because one say, this is what an American is, and the other says, no, this is what an American is. If you have those values and you have those values, whose values are American values? You know what? I want to know what God's values are. That's the thing that matters. That's the thing that counts, not men's matters. We're fickled. Notice, there's also 
an increase in knowledge of finding evidence that atheism is illogical and unscientific. And you've heard me talk on that before. There is great reason to believe that there truly is a creator and that his character is revealed through the things that are made. So what happened in the first six days of creation, God gives us reason on the seventh day to meditate on them and say, oh, I see God working in this and I see God working in that. That flower, man, there must have been a mathematician behind that to make all those little petals in the right geometric proportions. If you want an experiment, take a new tree, one that the wind hasn't bent or something. And as it grows, just take an entire string to the bottom branch and then tie a string to the branch above it and then the branch above it, and the branch above it. There's a book called This Green World by Rutherford Platt. He's he's an evolutionist. But in that book, he shows that different types of trees have different mathematical patterns to them. Even an elm tree, what makes an elm tree? It's the angle of the branches as they go off. A pine tree and a spruce tree have a different mathematical pattern to them. What does that tell me? On the Sabbath, when I look at these trees and I study nature, I say, wow, God's a mathematician. And not only that, but he's an artist. And boy, does he have a variety. You see, it tells us, it's his second book beside the Bible. There are different theories of interpretation, and Bruce covered a lot of that. In Genesis 1.1, this is the most profound text in the Bible. Most profound text. And without it, if we don't have this straight, it affects our whole life, even today. And notice, if God does not exist, then Genesis 1.1, it presents a real problem. Either the statement is true or it's false. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If God does not exist, he couldn't have created anything. Then where did all this stuff come from? You see. There had to be a singularity or a point of origin. If God doesn't exist, where did everything come from? Scientifically, something that does not exist cannot make something that does exist. Right? There's only two choices. Either God did do what he said or he didn't do what he said. There's two worldviews. One is a belief, one is unbelief, and there's no other alternatives. You've seen this slide before by Richard Dawkins, one of the uh, most notable of the atheists and scientists. Well, actually, he's a philosopher uh, in the world today. And notice what he says. Atheism is the conceit to believe that some men have infinite knowledge and have used this infinite knowledge to perform the godlike task of proving a negative. In plain words, they, they're using their wisdom to prove that God doesn't exist in spite of the evidence. I would say that's pretty, pretty boastful. Notice here again, you can read the rest of that, It says, 
from nothing our universe began. Well, then how'd it get here? It must have gotten here on its own by natural process. And Bruce covered that very well. Notice what it says. Out of the nothingness of outer space, all of a sudden one day, it became unstable, and out of that nothingness, boom, everything came. Well, what happened one second before the boom? And what was there? You see, something coming from nothing. Louis Pasteur disproved that a long time ago with his... uh, work against spontaneous generation. And in spontaneous generation, it says that that an inanimate object can give birth to an animate object. In plain words, a rock can produce a living creature. That doesn't make sense. In his case, it was a piece of dead meat, you see. But notice what George Wald says in Scientific American. Spontaneous generation was disproved a hundred years ago. But that would lead us to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on what grounds? Scientific grounds, right? What's it say? Philosophical grounds. In plain words, it's an assumption. It's a philosophy. Religion falls under philosophy. And plain words, on our religious grounds, we cannot accept this. So we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously. Now, if a noted scientist can say that, he is willfully ignorant. And the idea that from nothing our universe began, of course, we're going to go into nothing. There's no reason for our being here. That doesn't give me a whole lot of hope. The materialistic views of Darwin, Huxley, Simpson, Monod, and Dawkins are based on personal philosophy, not empirical evidence. Why? Because the evidence points to creation. There's no transitional forms. You don't have half an eyeball. You either have an eyeball or you don't have an eyeball, right? Okay, and this is not science, it's myth. Well, we believe, and I've noticed this, he brought this out, Bruce brought this out in his uh, fourth presentation, that in some of these museums, look carefully as you go through. I remember I was up in uh, Nova Scotia, I was at a museum there, the Alexander Graham Bell Museum, And one of the things that they were having on there, they were talking about evolution of something, I don't remember what, but it says, it may have been, or it possibly was. You know, that's not fact, that's opinion. You see, it's not fact. What actually did happen? Notice what Lee Strobel said. I didn't want there to be a God who would hold me responsible for my immoral lifestyle. He didn't want there to be a God. This is willful ignorance. He had to either change his lifestyle or change his God. Fortunately, Lee Strobel chose to become a Christian. He left his immoral lifestyle and became a Christian. But the point of the matter is that this scientist openly admits 
that he believed in evolution because he didn't want to believe the alternative. Atheism and skepticism always justify themselves on the existence of wickedness, evil, and death in this world. We'll come back to death. This is not a scientific argument. It's a philosophical argument. Following the same line of thought, if there can't be a a loving God, there can't be an all-powerful God, or he wouldn't have allowed wars. He wouldn't allow my mother to have cancer. He wouldn't have allowed my sister to die. There can't be a loving God. You know, that's not a scientific statement on the existence of God. That's a statement of your understanding of what his character is like, you see. It's your perception of God. And if you look at the scriptures, it gives a different perspective of God. Quite frankly, if God is a God who kills people, I can't wait to drop them in the frying pan, he, who, a God who would let people suffer in a burning hellfire for millions of years. You know what? I don't think I'd want to believe in that kind of God. But that isn't what the scripture tells us. It tells us he's a God of love. And following that same line of thought, if the wickedness in the world proves there's no God, then what do you do with the goodness in the world? What do you do with the self-sacrifice? What do you do with the martyrs who give their lives for somebody else? They don't fall into survival of the fittest. They fall into self-sacrificing love. So if wickedness proves there is no God, then goodness in the world proves there is a God. And what is the greatest testimony we can give to people that there is a God? By our lives and how we live ethically and morally and how we live lives of love, willing to put others ahead of ourselves. So we find that evolution, even though it's based on atheism, evolution and atheism is really religion, just as much as believing in God is, theism. So what's the matter? The matter is the facts. We see a fact, that's a bone, okay? Why is that bone over there? How did it get over there? What kind of a bone is it? That depends on your worldview. Did God create that, or did it just happen to form there when the building was being built? You know, where did it come from? Did somebody put it there? Creation is a religion. What is it? Its facts are viewed from the point of view of faith in Genesis 1.1. Whereas evolution is a religion, its facts are interpreted without faith in Genesis 1.1. And one says that faith in the divine development of the world. The other says if they have faith that natural processes brought it about. Both of them are faith. Nobody was there. Dawkins wasn't there at creation. As a matter of fact, Moses wasn't there at creation. The only one who was there at creation was God. And God wrote down, this is what happened. We either believe him or we don't. As a matter of fact, it takes more faith to believe in evolution than it does creation. Because 
the cards are all stacked on the side of the creationist. All right, I mentioned about goodness. Here's another thing. I think God has a sense of humor. Look at these orchids. These are called monkey orchids. And as you look at these, how does the evolutionist explain these? There they are showing their teeth. This one looks kind of frowny. This one looks so sad. These are actually flowers. I think God threw that in there just to uh, show us, hey, look, he's got personality. He's not just a mysterious force. He's a living being. That's what it means when it says the things of nature tell us about God. I believe God has a sense of humor. Every time I get up in the morning, look in the mirror, I know he does. <laughs> now, in Romans 1, 20 and 21, notice what it says. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Aha, uh-huh. they're clearly seen. If you look at them with the right eyes, not with an assumption, but the eyes of faith. And notice, why are they there? Why are those monkey orchids there? So that they are without excuse for knowing something about what the God of heaven is like. Why? Verse 21. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became foolish I mean, vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Remember what Lee Strobel said? I didn't want to believe in God because it affected my life. And what did the other scientists say? Well, the only alternative is to believe in God, so therefore I choose to believe the impossible. And as a result, they create their own alternate explanations. This is willful ignorance which breeds cunningly devised fables. And that creeps into truth. Now again, this is not a moral judgment on people who don't believe in God. I'm not saying they're good people or bad people. I'm saying that this is the perspective that they're coming from. Notice this point too. There are not two creation stories. I mentioned that. But what is it saying? It's saying that we are not to operate just on natural law. And when we leave the commandments of God, we will revert back to natural law. And we'll have a guilty conscience for it too. There'll be a nagging, a nagging on our conscience. Praise the Lord. That's called the Holy Spirit. Because we know what's better. Why do so many people live immoral lifestyles? They've left the moral law and gone back to the the natural law. Therefore, they're under the number six. And you get six, six, and six, and you're in real big trouble when you reject the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you see. And God wants to give us the supreme, ultimate seven, which is fellowship with him. And notice there's other interpretation of that true, uh, also that's valid. The seventh day cannot be dealt with by science because it deals with the creator's relationship with creation and the moral law on how to behave. Now another interesting point is look carefully at 
Genesis 2, 1 through 3, Exodus 20, 8 through 11, and Revelation 14, verse 7. There's a principle that you need to know about Hebrew literature. And that is if something is mentioned over here, and that same thing or something related to it is mentioned over here, those two thoughts are connected, no matter where they're found in the Bible. That's why Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Okay? You run over to John 1.1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Those two thoughts are directly connected. So who is the Word that became flesh that was with God in the beginning? It was Christ. The Barah. The, the one who created. He was the agent through whom God worked. You see. And so those thoughts are connected. Now when you look at these texts, notice what it says in 2, verses 1 through 3. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. Now look at verse 3. And God blessed the seventh day. He sanctified it because... In it, he had rested from all the works which he had created and made. Now look at Exodus. And here, where the Ten Commandments are found. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Skipping down to uh, verse 10. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. And then skip down to 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, and he blessed and hallowed it. Hmm. Similar thoughts, right? So Genesis 2, 1 through 3, is directly connected with Exodus 20, 8 through 11. Now, in the New Testament, it's connected again. In Revelation, this is the three angels' messages of Revelation 14, but As you look at this, look at verse 7 in particular. It says, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, which means respect for God. Give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is coming. Aha, now the judgment is brought in. And worship him. What's the one thing the devil wants? Worship. That's what we can't give him. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. Bruce Malone brought out very well the heavens. That's astronomy and meteorology and everything else that's above us. And the earth, that's geology. And the sea, oceanography. And the fountains of water, the currents of the water. That's all physical stuff. That's the stuff that God created. And these thoughts are connected. He's saying the God of creation is the God who's going to be active in Revelation. If you throw out the creation story, you have to throw out Revelation because it's talking about the judge who was the creator in the beginning who's going to be at this end judging us. So when God rested, there are actually four different words that are used, but basically they overlap in their meaning. He rested, he stopped his labor just as we are to stop ours. He hallowed it. That means he set it aside for a special purpose. 
He sanctified it. That made it sacred and holy. He blessed it. The word blessed means happy. Okay? And there is no biblical record that he ever changed his mind. And he never says that about any other thing. There are two things that come out of the early creation story. There are two things that come down to us from creation. Marriage and Sabbath. And both of those are under attack today. Very much so. And theistic evolution is laying the groundwork for undermining scripture so it can't happen. Now, quite frankly, I'm going to be a little harder, I must admit, on theistic evolution than I am on atheism. Because atheism, at least they take a stand. Theistic evolution doesn't. It's wishy-washy. And that wishy-washiness is what has caused confusion in the world today and religion. Consider this point. Let's look at biblical literature for a moment. Creation, there are three main themes. Now, I know Bruce brought out that there are seven different C's in uh, Genesis story or the scriptures. But basically, there's three major themes in, in biblical and Hebrew thought. That is the creation, the redemption, and the judgment. Those three are tied together all through the scripture. And quite frankly, the Bible itself is built on what is called a chiasm. A chiasm is like an X. And if you look carefully, you will see these, these different parallels. You, what started off here will end up over here. And then the next step over here, next step here. There's a Babylon there, there's a Babylon there. There's a creation here, there's a recreation there. There's a judgment there, there's a judgment there. You see. And at the point of it, we find the cross. We find the Messiah. Now, the word Christ is written with an X in, in uh, the Greek. So this is why a lot of people write Xmas instead of Christmas. Okay? Now, a chiasm can be cut in half. It can either go down and up, or it can go bottom, up, and down. Or it can go straight across. Let's look at this for a moment. When man fell, which direction did he go? We find here he was made perfect, he fell into sin, he was redeemed, and now he's being restored. You see the theme? And here we find creation. Then along comes the Messiah who redeems it all. And then we go back to judgment that way. And so some of these themes go either direction. Now, let's look at the theistic evolutionists. We find that they have a problem because man and nature were created perfect and they degenerated to chaos. Let's look at this. It says, creationism says man was created perfect, but he's been going downhill to destruction. Now, evolution says... Well, out of the chaos and the confusion of nature, man evolved and he's going toward perfection. So the creationist is riding the elevator down this way. The evolutionist is riding the elevator up that way. I should say elevator, I should say escalator. And 
So one's going down, one's going up. Now what about the theistic evolutionist? He's caught in the middle. He doesn't know if he's coming or going. He doesn't know if he's going up or down. Because he doesn't want to accept all of uh, the uh, atheistic evolution or he'll have to throw out God and he can't do that. But then if he accepts the creation story, he has to throw out evolution. He doesn't want to do that. So he's stuck, you see. And it makes a wishy-washy type of relationship. Three Bible themes. I mentioned that. Who made us? Who bought us? And to whom are we accountable? This, if we do not believe in the creation story, how can we know that the salvation story isn't also a fallacy? How do we know also that the birth of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ is not also fable? Do you know that there are seminaries today that are teaching that Jesus is not the divine son of God. That there really was not a literal crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus never really hung on the cross. He never really was resurrected from the grave. And preachers are taking this to their pulpits. No wonder there's confusion. And I'm going to be hard on preachers because I am one. Okay? So I'm pointing at myself as well as others. But no wonder there are so many societal problems. Because if we have told people that these are all fallacies and fables, that you can't depend on them, then how can I depend on anything else the Bible says? You see. And if the Ten Commandments have been thrown out or are no longer valid, then why can't I commit abortion? Why can't I steal? I had a lady tell me the other day that her son is a Christian, but he's been living for a number of years with the ladies with whom he's not married. And I kind of looked at her a little bit. She says, I think he's got to rethink some things. You see, what's happening is, oh, the law doesn't matter anymore. But there is a judgment ahead. It's a part of that salvation process. Notice what it says in uh, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. It says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. Now, apparently, God's keeping books. I don't know if it's on a computer or on a scroll or an iPad or what he's doing, but he's apparently keeping books of records. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of the thing, those things which were written in the books according to their works. What? We are saved by grace. But notice this text, Revelation 20, and there it says in verse 12 that we are judged according to our works. So apparently there's a standard by which our lives are being measured. Is that the natural law? Or is that the moral law by which we are judged? And science cannot measure that. We find also in verse 15, it says, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. 
So consider this point. Archaeology is constantly increasing our understanding of the biblical past. We really don't need archaeology. We should believe it from the, the inspired word. But it's nice to know that scientists are finding things that support because the scripture says that our faith should be built on evidence. And there are evidences there. Here's a map of the, the Middle East. This is the map as it was of the ancient biblical times. Matter of fact, you can see right up here, Nineveh, that's Mosul, in, that's being bombed in the news. That's where Jonah was working. And there are the Chaldees down here. And notice the city here called Uruk. I'm coming back to that in just a moment, so keep that in your mind. This is what it was like. And these are some of the ancient kingdoms that came out of that area. Notice in Genesis 10.10, it says, And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech, or Uruk, same thing, and Akkad, or the Akkadians, and Kalna, in the plain, or the land of Shinar. This plain area up through here, flat area, that's the land of Shinar. You see. Now, what about this? It's interesting that the first writings are starting to appear. It's interesting also that the first tablet that appears is the oldest tablet that we know of. It's called the pig tablet. Anybody ever hear of the pig tablet before? Oh, okay. Well, I got to tell you about that. The historical period of Eric or Uruk, which we just saw on the map, in Genesis 10.10, it identifies Babel and Eric as the beginning of the kingdom of whom? Okay, it's interesting that a tablet has been found that takes us back to the time of Nimrod. And it's called the pig tablet, because a man was buying some pigs, making some transactions. And it's actually a bill of sale that's about 4,000 years old. That is the oldest written record we have. It was written before Moses. It's not very big, it's just a little thing. But yet, it's telling the story that there were nine pigs that he was buying. But isn't it interesting that 4,000 years later, we're just discovering that. The interesting part is where it was located. It was located in a city that was established by Nimrod. And we date, of course, we got into uh, the dating process last week with uh, Bruce. But if we count that as valid, we date... Uh, Babel and Eric or Yurk to Nimrod, the son of Cush. Cush was the son of Ham, and Ham was one of the sons of one of the three sons of Noah, and the other being Shem and Japheth. The archaeologists date this city at 3100 BC. However, the Bible 
places it or dates it in the time of Nimrod, the son of Ham. As we look further down, notice what it says. This is a comfortable date for this oldest example of writing. So people in ancient times knew how to write. Nimrod was alive at the Tower of Babel. Nimrod was involved with the Tower of Babel. And Nimrod, it says, was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now that meant that he was a tyrant. And uh, he was, that's not a good term to be a mighty hunter before the Lord. God was saying that he was an oppressive dictator. He also established Babylon. And we find that later Nineveh and Babylon would become world powers in the time of the prophets and of the time of, of uh, Daniel. And so this tablet that was found is older than any of those kingdoms. And we find that it shows some very interesting things. That is the language that is used on that tablet. They believe, some archaeologists believe, that it is the same language that Nimrod spoke. Before the Tower of Babel, everybody spoke the same language, right? So, could it possibly be that the language that is on that stone might actually be the language that Noah spoke? Now, how he pronounced it, I don't know, you know, because cuneiform is just a bunch of little wedge-shaped markings. But nonetheless, it tells us that evidence is beginning to emerge from the rocks and the dust that tell us about a time that the Bible refers to. A lot of people say, well, you know, the Bible story and the, the flood, the creation story, Tower of Babel, the fall of man, other cultures have stories of that. When Noah sat down and copied Hammurabi and he copied uh, some of the stories from myth. Well, that's what the evolutionist would have you believe, or the theistic evolutionist would have you believe. But what if it's the other way around? What if from Babel, don't forget up to the Tower of Babel, they all spoke the same language. Everybody was familiar with the creation. Everybody was familiar with the fall of man. They were familiar with the flood. They were familiar with the tower. And then they branched off to various parts of the world. And with their religions and their traditions and their cultures, a lot of these stories got corrupted. But the Hebrews who were closer to home, they retained the biblical story. So is it a matter of myth or memory? What does the Bible actually support? It's interesting to note that as far away as China... Far away is China. They're discovering that the atheistic communist government and people in China today are really, without even being aware of it, every day telling the Bible story. Because the Chinese language, the characters that they use, these little figures that they use, these were fixed 
thousands of years ago in the B.C. Before there was Confucianism, before there was Buddhism, before there was Jainism or atheism uh, ruling these countries, that language was locked. Now, if you take the characters and you break them up into their individual parts, because they used a picture uh, language, whereas we use the alphabet, okay? Notice the word for God. The word for God is Shangdai, or in some areas it's pronounced Shangtai. Now, what does it mean? It means the heavenly ruler. But it's very interesting that the word Shangdai is very similar to the Hebrew word Shaddai, El Shaddai. Who is El Shaddai? El Shaddai is God Almighty. That's what El Shaddai means. By the way, never talk about the Almighty dollar. You're, you're committing blasphemy and taking the name of the Lord in vain. Because the, the dollar is not Almighty. Only El Shaddai is Almighty. And so we find there's similarities in these names. And the way they describe him, that he is the all-powerful God of the, the heavens and the universe. It's interesting that before there were many gods worshipped in Asia, the Chinese believed in only one God. They were monotheistic. Let's look at what else. Take some of these Chinese characters. For instance, the word, the Chinese word, and I'm not going to try to pronounce them, but I'll point them to you. The Chinese word for boat. See it there? You break it down to its individual parts. It says, this part over here says, a vessel plus, that means eight. Eight, and what is that? Mouths or people. Eight people in a boat, in a vessel. That's the word for boat. Did you ever hear of anything like that before? Where in the Bible do you find eight people in a boat? In the ark, right? All right, now let's look at the word for flood. Over here, this is the word for flood. And it says water. This is water, total, together. This word total means together. Earth, eight. Okay, so together, the eight people, and there's water. That's the word for flood. These things, they're beginning to, to resurface. Now, of course, some of this language has been corrupted. And uh, even in English, we have our own shorthand. So do they. But let's look at this one, the word for garden. And this says, dust, a person or mouth or breath. Um, I, don't, I can't read that. Can you? Anyway, when you put them together, it's a garden. All right? And down here, to create, to walk and to talk, living dust man. The living dust man walked and talked. He was created. And you see how even the, the, the language after all these millennia, it still speaks things that uh, go with the scriptures. This word for sacrifice, I'm not even going to try it. That word means ox, sheep, lovely spear. Notice here, 
It's for brutal. It, it's elder brother. Well, it was the elder brother who Cain who killed Abel, you see. Here's another. Covet. Two trees, tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and a woman. She was coveting the fruit, right? Look at this one, confusion. It contains the word for tongue, which the author suggests is an allusion to the Tower of Babel. And there, it's the word for confusion. And then the last one, migrate. It's, it says, West Big Division Walk. And the author here is suggesting that this is talking about the division of the earth and how the people spread out. So you see, there's still evidence there linguistically. We find that Adam's children, why did they wait so long to write it down? Because in biblical times, writing, which we consider to be a respectable thing to do, why? So we don't forget. But in those days, their memory was a lot better. They considered to write things down was a sign that you're feeble-minded. And so a lot of these stories you were supposed to know and remember and repeat. But then as men's lives began to get shorter and their minds began to get shorter, they began to forget. And so they had to write them down. And we find here that God will not forget his own. He'll vindicate those who are covered with the blood of Christ. And notice that their name is written in the book of life. So it's recorded. And we find that Jesus won't forget you. There'll be room for you too. I just mentioned this in ancient times. They, uh, they thought it a sign of mental degeneracy to write it down. But eventually they did. So this is one reason why the Sumerians and the Babylonians, a lot of them started writing beforehand. But that doesn't mean that Moses copied from them. I mean, a lot of books have been written by Abraham Lincoln. Some were written in the 1800s. Some were written in the 2000s. But that doesn't change the fact that Abraham Lincoln still lived when he did. You see, it doesn't matter when you wrote it down. It's when did it happen that counted. So we find that creation, flood, Tower of Babel, and all these other stories that many consider mythology, even in the primitive societies, and it's scattered throughout the world, as Bruce brought out. But as these stories begin to emerge, what does it tell us? It tells us that there was a primitive memory that has infiltrated and been nurtured in all uh, cultures worldwide, remembering an actual event that happened, or events even though their accounts may be a little different. And so these are coming to life now. They each have a kernel of truth behind them, and we need to compare them with Scripture. Now, theistic evolution, if Genesis 1 through 11 is a myth or folklore, then how does one know the rest of the Old Testament is a myth and folklore? And if the Old Testament is myth and folklore, what's that say about the New Testament? Is that likewise? Perhaps Jesus was a myth. Perhaps the scriptures cannot be trusted. I took this from a Bible commentary. 
for studying the book of Genesis. And it's written by a theistic evolutionist. And notice what he says. We have to remember this is uh, this all the time as we study it. It is not addressed to sophisticated modern people like ourselves who have lost the taste for the simple storytelling and who do our theology in a philosophical way. Boy, does that sound stuffy. This guy's too big for his britches, right? Oh, we are superior. We do things in a sophisticated way, not a simple way like they did. Notice what else he says. It is often said that science is our guide and the mentor now, not religion. Look what he says at the bottom one. Science is essentially atheistic, and there is no doubt that many agree with him. And then what else does he say? At the same time, Christians too have changed in their attitude towards science. Hmm. Now he's trying to blend the first six days with the, the moral law of the seventh day and try to come up with a hodgepodge. Okay, there must be very few who would today seriously contend that the world came into being in six days or that man was constructed out of a lump of clay or woman from a spare rib. And then look what he says at the bottom. It was wrong because it tried to make out that Genesis was a textbook of science as well as being a textbook of faith. I constantly hear Bill O'Reilly say, well, the Bible is, is a book of religion. It's a book of faith. It's not a book of science, and it's not a book of history. You cannot believe the book of Genesis because it's all myth. Well, if that's myth, then what about Revelation? Because Revelation supports Genesis. And notice also, if you Christians believe that, we are told, you will believe anything. How can anyone take seriously a God who fashioned the world in six days and who went for a walk in a garden called Eden and held conversations with snakes? Well, he took his walk in the garden to have conversation with people. And his conversation with a snake was a condemnation not a conversation. And notice also, it says, uh, Genesis has a kind of stock example of the superstitions from which it has freed mankind. So science has freed us from the superstitions of the Bible. These are religious people writing this. This man is a theologian, a natural theologian. And notice what else? We are admitting that science is the proper source to turn to for factual knowledge about the physical origin and nature of the universe. And that Genesis contributes to our understanding is a spiritual contribution. And then notice it says Genesis as imaginative stories. What's he saying? He's saying you can't believe the Bible. He's undermining scripture. Now, we got another problem also. That is the problem of death. You see, according to the scripture, 
Adam and Eve were told they could eat what they wanted of the trees, except for one. But in Genesis 2.17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Eve should not have been over there. She shouldn't have left Adam's side. That was her first boo-boo. Okay? Adam apparently had told her that the devil was around there somewhere. But what did she do? She went over out of curiosity. And she ran into the serpent. And while she's over there, what does the serpent say? Now, God said, you can eat of all these trees, but don't eat of this one. And he says, did God say you will die if you eat of this? Now, Eve adds to the scripture. This is a common, common mistake that people make. And I've noticed it in politics, too, as well as in theology. People will make a statement, add something to it, and then they will debate on what they added. You see? And you've got to be careful of that. Because Eve says, he says, did God say you can eat of the trees in here? She said, oh, God said we can eat of all those except this one and that we shouldn't even touch it. Did God say you shouldn't touch it? I mean, I believe that he might have said that. But in the scripture, does it say that God said she shouldn't touch it? No, it doesn't. She added that in. And here's the devil sitting in the tree munching away on whatever it was, apple, peach, or whatever it was he was eating. And he says, did God really say that? Oh, well, hmm, this is good. Want some? And she saw that he had touched it. Nothing happened to him. So maybe it's harmless. Maybe God was wrong. It wasn't what God was wrong. She added to it, you see. And this is the reason why both in Deuteronomy and also in Revelation, it warns about adding or subtracting from Scripture. For the soul that sinneth, it shall die. So the problem of death, death is the result of sin. Death had to come after the creation of man. Now, if before man was created, there were dinosaurs and there were uh, all kinds of creatures for eons, on the earth, living and dying, then death is not the penalty for sin. Death is a natural part of life. And if death is a natural part of life, it's not an enemy. It's just natural. And if that's the case, death is not the penalty for sin because the penalty was in existence before the sin was. So, Therefore, there must not be sin. And if there is no sin, why do you need a Savior? Why did you need him the first time? And above all, why do you need him a second time? And if it's a natural part of life, then why do you need a judgment? What are you going to be judged on? You're just doing what comes naturally. You see where these things domino. Okay, when God created the first man... It says that the Lord um, God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostril the breath of life, and man became a living being. Genesis 2, 7. 
Notice it said he became a living being. So what do you have? You have the dust of the ground. He breathes into the breath of life. And together they became a living soul. You want to see a soul? Ta-da! You're looking at one. Right? All right. These are the two elements. The elements of the earth plus the breath of God. You are a living being. So, what are you if you take one of those elements away? Let's take away the breath of God. You go back to being dirt. No wonder they call it Mother Earth. You know? We go back to Earth. You are either a living soul or you're a corpse. There's no in between. And we find that in Genesis 5, 1 through 32, people lived a long time. And I don't want to rehash what Bruce said, but you notice that their life cycles, or their life uh, lengths, begin to shorten. Here's Adam at 930 years. Down here, Methuselah, 969 years. By the time you get down to Abraham, it's only 175 years. And what does the Bible say is the average man for a person today? Between 70 and 80, right? Depending on your strength. In about a month and a half, I will be right in the middle there. What then is the result? The result is that men have been degenerating. We've been going downhill toward death. Death is the reverse of creation. It's creation in reverse. That's what death is. That's why when Jesus comes back again in the Syriac translation of the New Testament, when it says Jesus comes back again and the dead rise, you know what it says? It says the dead are resuscitated. That's what it says. What happens? He breathes the breath of life back into them and they become living creatures again, living souls. And so we find this is also true on our spiritual life. If we are living just under natural law and we are just living for our bodies without the moral law and the spirituality, we are walking dead people. But when the Spirit of God comes into us, then we are alive for the Lord. You see what I mean? So there's a comparison between spiritual death and literal death in that sense. Notice what it says in Revelation well, uh, 14, 6 through 9. You're familiar with this, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But notice that in verse 6, It says the everlasting gospel is to be taken to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Worldwide, just like the flood was worldwide. In loud voice, there's nothing secret about this. And what's it saying? Fear God, give glory to him. Why? Because there's a judgment ahead. And this judgment is to do what? It says to worship him that made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of deep. So, Whoever created us, we're responsible to him. We have an accountability. And it also tells us about Babylon falling. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. Babylon in the beginning, there's a Babylon in the end. A literal Babylon, a spiritual Babylon. And if any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, well, if all of this is a myth, who cares about the mark of the beast? 
Who cares about an image to the beast? And so skepticism and doubt are being bred in these last days. The story of Noah in the Old Testament lays the groundwork for our belief in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God's law was the standard of right and wrong. Notice what it says in the scriptures in Revelation uh, 14.12. Here is the patience of the saints. That means the steadfastness of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God. Which ones? The ones that God talked to Adam about in the garden. Talked to Moses about on the mountain. Keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Both of these things are under attack today. Jesus is coming back again, whether we like it or not. We need to be ready for it. But what are the social implications of discarding faith in the scriptures? There are many, both in the social and also in your worldview. Notice here the foundations are being undermined in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Notice here, the moral law, it says it's good for the way we live our lives, doctrinally, marriage-wise, the clothes we wear, the food we eat, our conduct. Notice what it says in Romans 3.20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the purpose of the law is to tell us What is the right way to live? All right, if we throw the law out, what do we do? We end up reverting back to natural law, the first six days of creation. No wonder if thou shalt not kill is done away with. What's wrong with abortion? If you throw out thou shalt not commit adultery, what's wrong with pornography? What's wrong with homosexuality? What's wrong with lawlessness? There's no foundation. And some of these things, the meaning of life, the standards, God's will for marriage, the laws, the brotherhood of man, they're being replaced. Racism takes the place of the brotherhood of man. All of these things are social evolution that has developed. What are some other things? These are some of the things that God speaks about as absolutes in his commandments. But it talks about wrath, people hating and arguing and fighting and killing each other. Hatred, pornography, lawlessness, murder, adultery, uncleanness, fornication, witchcraft, strife, abortion, homosexuality, envying, drunkenness, drugs. Are any of those things going on today? Why? Because preachers accepting theistic evolution have said, you don't have to believe in the Bible as a bunch of fairy tales. It's just imaginative stories. No wonder there is no standard. So what happens? The commandments are thrown out. This is the reason why God calls a people, just like he called people into the ark in the last days, he calls people out of Babylon and into the ark of the safety of Christ. And so we find this is based on faith. Now in Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Because of the evidence of the past, I can trust God, even without looking at the evidence of the future, he's going to be consistent. 
He's not going to be wishy-washy and change his mind. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Now this is a point that David brought out. You notice that the Bible talks in Hebrews 11 about the different heroes of faith. But these men would not have been heroes of faith if they first did not believe the good report that was given to them by their elders, showing them the evidence from creation. You see, as we look back at the evidence, it gives us faith that he's going to work again. In plain words, the modern book of Acts is being written today. The modern Hebrews 11 is being written today. By faith Abraham, by faith Sarah, by faith Noah. In the future, it may be by faith Dan or by faith Tony, you see. As we keep that same faith. Look at verse 3. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. He spoke them into existence and that things which are seen are not made of things which do appear. God created them. He spoke them into existence. Faith is based upon evidence and builds confidence in the fulfillment of what is promised. Myth is built upon unsubstantiated belief. Myth will believe a fairy tale, but faith has grounds for its belief. Before we can have faith, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 11.6, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For before you can even come to God, there are two requirements. Number one, you must believe that he is. That's a rebuke to atheism. And secondly, that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That's a rebuke to agnosticism, you see. As Bruce brought out, there are great themes in the scriptures. He listed seven C's. There's creation, which talks about our origin. Corruption, the fall of man. There's catastrophe, the flood. Confusion, Babylon. Christ, the Messiah. The cross, the sacrificial lamb. The consummation. The consummation is last day events. Eschatology. And then comes recreation. So, the scripture is not against science. It's against the interpretation of science that is false. O Timothy, 2 Timothy, I mean 1 Timothy 6.20. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. It doesn't say he's opposed to true science, but falsely so-called. Why? Because we don't want to chase fables. And 1 Timothy 1.4, it talks, excuse me, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies that minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. First, uh, 2 Peter 1.16, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter was there. So my friends, 
God does not exist, then Genesis 1.1 presents a problem. For it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If we can't have faith in the truthfulness of God in Genesis, then we're foolishly chasing fables, and there's no longer hope beyond death. Can the Bible be trusted? Can God be trusted? We have to make that decision ourselves. We can make personal decisions about this statement. Where we stand on this makes a difference, a big difference, in how we live our lives, how we face the future, what the future holds for us. And God is asking us to decide on the evidence. In Joshua, it says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the blessed hope that is yet before us. And by the grace of God, I hope that's your, your fond wish too. Remember in Psalm 14.1, it says, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. But the Christian says, there is. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that our God lives and that it does make a difference whether or not we believe the Genesis story. For Lord, if it is not true, we are the most miserable of people for we are chasing cunningly devised fables. But Lord, because it is true, we have the fond hope of the great great day when Jesus comes back and makes all things new again. We will see personally how you made the earth the first time as we observe you making it the second. Come into our hearts and help us to be the kind of people we should be. What manner of men and women ought we to be knowing these things? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom.